um, the Christian life is a fight. It's a fight. That's what the Apostle Paul is telling us. And he says, finally, uh, it's really a word that means like from now on, from this time on. And so he's saying, family, that for like we're in it for the long haul. It's not an occasional fight. It's just the Christian life is a fight. And um, that might be counterintuitive because I think a lot of us frame the struggle that we experience in our lives, the fight, the conflict, as one of the main things that following Jesus is supposed to overcome. Like we assume that following Jesus should make our lives easier and, and more free of uh, conflict. And, and Paul's saying, well, in, in some ways, yes. I mean, Jesus came to bring peace. Jesus does bring all kinds of peace. But uh, in another way, following Jesus puts you right in the middle of a battle. And um, it's important to know that. Uh, some of you might remember, I've used this analogy before, but like imagine, imagine um, that you're on a battleship, but you're trying to live your life as if you're on a cruise ship. Uh, see, that's going to make for a really confusing, perplexing experience, isn't it? I mean, you're going to wonder, like, why isn't it fun? And where's where's the jazz music? And where's my pina colada? And, uh, and, and instead, like, bullets are flying, and people are running and screaming and falling on the deck around you. And it's, it's just, Paul's saying, the battleship is your reality, so don't live like you're on a cruise ship. Paul says that we're at war, not occasionally here and there, but just for the remaining time. Jesus comes back um, we're in a fight and so we talked about that fight generally a couple of weeks ago and then last week we looked more specifically at the foe that we face our enemy uh, we saw that the devil is powerful and he's evil and he's cunning and this morning I want to dig a little more deeply into that third characteristic um, Paul tells us that the devil has schemes he has schemes and uh, like the, the forces of evil come against us, not in some generic abstract way, but uh, strategically. Like the devil has methods. He's intentional and deliberate about how he wages war. He has particular goals and he uses particular methods to reach his goals. So if we ask a question like, um, like what are the goals of spiritual evil? What is the devil up to? What is the devil up to? Big picture, I figure the main goal of the devil is to mess with what the um, biblical prophets call shalom. Uh, you know, you and I were created for relational flourishing uh, with the natural world, with, with ourselves, uh, with one another, and at the heart of it all, with, with God. And the devil wants to mess with all of that. Like, he wants in idolatry in our hearts. He wants injustice in our communities. Uh, and beneath it all, he wants this steady baseline of shame. Another way to think about it is this. Like, God's nature is love. Salvation means being restored to life in the love of God, which involves loving him uh, with all of who we are and loving our neighbors um, as we love ourselves. Uh, and the devil wants to mess with that. He wants to mess with our love. He wants to twist and distort it or outright stop it. Now, how does he do it? I'm just a pastor. I, I don't know. I mean, I figure, I figure the devil does this in a lot of ways. Um, but what the Bible's story suggests is that the devil's main strategy, the, his main strategy is deception. It's deception. The main way he tries to mess with us 
and with the world is by lying. It's not the only thing the devil does, but it's the main thing he does. Um, we talked about this last week. Jesus says that the devil is the father of lies. The devil specializes in injecting distorted perceptions of God and of yourself and of the world into your heart. He's a liar. Now, that's a different take on uh, the devil from the kind of popular horror, horror movie take on the devil. In popular culture and entertainment, it's easy to get the impression that the main thing spiritual evil is up to in the world is like possession and attack, right? Uh, like the main thing the devil wants is to get you playing with Ouija boards and killing cats and uh, making explicit satanic vows. And look, I know we live in a really crazy world where that kind of stuff happens. And, and I know that when we go to the New Testament, we see that, yes, indeed, like, demonic oppression is real. And we don't even have to go to the New Testament. I mean, we can look at our world and see, like, demonic oppression is a real thing that, that um, people wrestle with and that people need liberation from. Uh, I don't think any of that is the devil's main method. In fact, I think often that kind of thing might be a distraction from the main battlefront. It's kind of a little skirmish off to the side, but not the main action. My hunch is that the devil might like it when Christians become preoccupied with looking for demons and praying against demons and trying to figure out exactly where and how and why a demon is exerting his influence. You know, there's a place uh, where Jesus says that on the last day, you'll, this will sound familiar to you, on the last day, many will say to him, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? And do many mighty works in your name. And Jesus will say, I never knew you. Which sounds to me like it's possible to be winning the casting out demons battle. And at the exact same time losing the real battle. Like losing the war. Like we can be winning at casting out demons. And at the same time, the devil can be keeping us from knowing and being known by Jesus. Deception is the devil's main method, and the main way we lose to the devil is not by failing to cast out demons, but by believing the lie. And, and so another way to say this um, is that, like, when you hear spiritual warfare, I wonder what comes to mind, spiritual warfare. It's going to be different for all of us, but, but, what, but my, my, my hunch is that, like, the vast majority of spiritual warfare is just really mundane really mundane. It's ordinary. It's kind of boring. And, and my view of this has been influenced by C.S. Lewis and his little book, The Screwtape Letters, but, but it's also been influenced by uh, some of the older Puritan writers from the 1600s. For a wedding gift, uh, one of my groomsmen gave me a book called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. Uh, it's by a Puritan called Thomas Brooks. Uh, what was my friend trying to tell me? family I do not know. <laughs> but the, bu the book is great. Uh, it basically, it breaks down all of these different ways the devil messes with us. So for example, one section is called Satan's Devices to Draw the Soul to Sin. And, uh, and then the author, Thomas Brooks, he just unpacks 12 ways the devil tries to get us to sin. And so some examples, by presenting the bait and hiding the hook. See, that's one of the devil's devices. By presenting to the soul the outward mercies enjoyed by people walking in sin and their freedom from outward miseries. It's like, look, look at all those sinners. They seem to be doing great. It's one of the devil's devices. 
by persuading the soul that repentance is easy. So that's, that's the kind of thing this book is filled with. Um, and then after identifying each of the devil's devices, Brooks gives like five or six remedies for each one of them, ways to defend very specifically against whatever the devil is bringing against you with that particular device. Now, it's a great beach read. Uh, <laughs> I might be the only person, I like to think I'm the only person in the history of the world uh, that has read that book on his honeymoon. Maybe me and a couple of Puritans. Um, another of the old books is by a Puritan named William Gurnall. It's called uh, The Christian Incomplete Armor. And then the subtitle is almost as long as this sermon. Here it is. Uh, the Saints War Against the Devil, wherein a discovery is made on that grand enemy of God and his people in his policies, power, seat of his empire, wickedness, and chief design he hath against the saints. A magazine opened from whence the Christian is furnished with spiritual arms for battle, helped on with his armor, and taught the use of his weapon together with the happy issue of the whole war. It's over a thousand pages long, big pages, small margins, uh, and it just walks through Ephesians 6, this passage that we've read, and it unpacks it verse by verse. It's another really fun read. Um, the Puritans had absolutely zero chill. Uh, but what they show pretty convincingly is that the main way the devil works, the main way the devil works is through deception, through the lie. And, uh, and, and so the most significant battlefront is always one that's in our minds and in our hearts. William Gurnall writes this in that thousand-page tome. He says, if people hear a noise at night, they cry, the devil, the devil, and they run for their lives. But they carry around in their very hearts all day the devil. For if you have a proud spirit or resentment, you are under his power. He is setting you in a precarious place. My friends, why don't you run from your pride crying the devil, the devil? Why don't you run from your resentment and your grudges crying the devil, the devil? Run from them in terror. You see, the war that we're at is, is less about um, demons hiding in the dark corners and much more about um, falling under um, the deception, embracing the lie. The way the devil is going to get at you 99.9% .9 of the time is not by oppressing you with a legion of demons, but by lying to your mind and to your heart. Um, he wants to mess with your love for God and your love for other people, and he does that uh, through deception, through deception. So we talked about that some last week, and this morning, I want to just drill down a little bit deeper. Uh, like, I really, I just feel so inadequate to speak to uh, the schemes of the devil, devil in any kind of, like, comprehensive way, but um, two ways that Scripture makes clear the devil uses deception to mess with shalom are temptation and then accusation. These are both forms of deception. They're both forms of the lie. Temptation and accusation. The devil tempts and he accuses. Um, and, and it's a really deadly combination. I mean, they, these, the, the set of lies works together perfectly because in temptation, what does the devil want to do? Like, he wants us to take sin too lightly. Uh, it's not a very big deal. He, he wants us to think it's not that bad. Like, everybody's doing it. It's just a little thing, and you can always stop, and you can always repent later and begin living a life that pleases God. And, and, and so there's, there are all kinds of ways that temptation comes at us. 
but um, it's always with a lie that makes sin look less significant than it really is. It's always with the goal of making sin look like a small thing, like an insignificant thing. Um, so that's temptation, but the devil never stops with temptation. Uh, he also comes at us with the lie of accusation. And in accusation, it's almost like he just reverses course and he wants us to, he, he wants us to think that sin is a huge thing. Uh, that he, like he, he, he wants us to feel, to feel all the awful weight of it. He says that we must bear the weight of it and that we're doomed to bear the weight of it. And do you see, family, like what a deadly combination that is? Temptation followed by accusation. With temptation, the devil says it's just a little thing you can always get out. And then with accusation, he says this is a huge thing and you'll never get out. There's no exit. On the way in, he says you can always repent. And then once you're in, he says repentance is impossible. With temptation, he says, you can ask for forgiveness later. You can always ask for forgiveness later. And then with accusation, he says, there's no forgiveness. There's no forgiveness for this. See, the devil tempts and he accuses. Um, this has been called his one-two punch. You remember that? I'm not a boxer. I'm more of an arm wrestler, as you know. Uh, but, but I do know this about boxing, um, that it's not the first punch that knocks you out, right? The first punch is usually like a left-handed jab. See, the devil's right-handed. He, he jabs, but then it's, it's so that he can set you out, set you up um, with the knockout punch of accusation. He tempts in order to accuse. He'll, he leads us into sin with the lie. That's temptation, and it's bad. But it's not nearly as deadly um, as the accusation that follows. And you see, that accusation is also the lie. Because the accusation doesn't just say that you've sinned. I mean, if, if the accusation was just saying that you've sinned, well, that would be true. Um, the accusation says that you've sinned and that there's no hope. Uh, that you've sinned and there's no help. That you've sinned and that God is no longer with you and for you. And so the accusation is designed to make us run and hide from God, just like our first parents did in the garden. Uh, it, it's designed to make us feel the full weight of our sin and to think that it's up to us to do something about it. And so you can remember Adam and Eve running and thinking, well, we are naked and we're ashamed and it's up to us to clothe ourselves. And so they cobbled together fig leaves. Um, the accusation is designed to keep us from knowing and, and trusting and experiencing the grace of God. Um, remember that the devil um, would love nothing more than to get you to just distrust the Father's love for you. And so, and so he calls it into question, and, and so often he succeeds, and we believe the lie. Now remember, um, the devil has no power to change in the slightest God's love and grace toward people like you and me. No power whatsoever. Uh, the principalities and powers cannot separate us from the love of God. That's what Paul says in Romans chapter 8. But there is a big difference between being loved and knowing that you're loved, right? Like, there's a difference between being, being perfectly loved and knowing that you're perfectly loved. Imagine, imagine a woman who has lived most of her life in uh, just total poverty. And then one day she inherits millions of dollars. Uh, she's told that the money is in the bank. She has shown documentation proving that the money is in the bank, proving that it is legally uh, hers, like it's all legal and legit. Um, 
but then she never does anything with it. She just lets it sit there. Uh, she, she keeps on living in poverty as if, as if none of that wealth is hers. Is that woman rich or poor? Both, right? Yeah, both. I mean, objectively, uh, she is a millionaire. But her life just doesn't reflect her true status. Um, her riches don't intersect with her actual living. They never touch her experience. What the gospel says, family, is that um, we have all the riches we will ever need. Uh, like, and, and don't think, don't think all, like, all the money or all the bling or all the, all, all the house or all the fancy car, because really, you don't actually need any of that. Um, but you do desperately need the love and mercy of God, and you do desperately need to know his gracious welcome, and you need to be brought into his family. And, and what the gospel says is like, I mean, what, what does it say? It says, how long are you in God's forever family? Forever. Sandlot. Forever. You're in it forever. You're in it forever. Scripture just declares that it's true that you have it all, and you have it in the most unshakable way. Um, but are you living out of it? Are you living out of it? Like, do you experience it? You see, family, you aren't just supposed to know, uh, excuse me, you're not just supposed to be loved and forgiven and accepted by God. I mean, you are. You're loved and forgiven and accepted by God, but you're not just supposed to be that. You're supposed to know. You're supposed to know that you're loved and forgiven and accepted by God. Um, you're supposed to trust it. And like we're supposed to live our lives out of that place of radical security. I wonder, what does that look like in your life? What does that look like for you? The devil can't do anything to change God's love for you, but he can do a whole lot to mess with you trusting it and knowing it and experiencing it and living on the basis of it. Like he can't touch the funds in your bank account, but he can... He can convince you never to visit the ATM. How is the devil lying to you? How is he tempting you? How is he accusing you? Um, Paul says, there's an outfit for that. There's armor. He says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. You know, this isn't the only place where the New Testament tells us to put something on. Earlier in Ephesians, Paul tells us to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God in true righteousness and holiness. And in Colossians, Paul tells us to clothe ourselves with compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, and above all, to put on love. And in Romans, uh, Paul tells us to put on the Lord Jesus Christ, and then in Ephesians 6, it's put on the armor of God. And I read all that, and I think, man, it's a lot of layers. I mean, that's a lot to put on. It's a lot to keep track of. And, and so here's a question that occurs to me. Like, is the New Testament really wanting to give us, like, four or five different outfits for our Christian wardrobe? Or are these really different just different ways of talking about one in the same reality. And, and I tend to think that it's the latter, um, that these are different ways, all different angles of getting at one 
in the same basic reality. There are different ways Paul has of talking about um, living out of our identity in Christ so that our lives actually fit with, actually match the truth of the gospel. And if that's right, well then, putting on the armor of God isn't something extraordinary. Uh, It's not something for us to do occasionally. It's just basic Christianity. It's just basic Christianity. It means living a life of repentance and faith. It means continually opposing evil and fighting sin and turning from it to receive the grace and goodness of our loving Savior. Um, Putting on the armor, I figure, means believing the gospel in a way that actually intersects with our lives, intersects with our experience. And so um, we're going to look at the armor starting more next week. And I think we'll see how it helps against um, more of the devil's schemes. But I'll close with this. You know, Martin Luther, uh, the great reformer, he reports that he was often visited by the devil. Um, I might be often visited by the devil, I just don't know it. So, because I'm dense. You, maybe, (laughs) he's deceptive. Yeah, um. Yeah, what's that? What's that great movie? Usual Suspects, right? The greatest trick the devil ever played was convincing the world he doesn't exist. Well, Martin Luther knew that the devil exists, and he, and he says like, and he would do battle with the devil all the time, and the devil would appear to him and would say things like, "Martin, uh, you are a liar, and you're greedy, and you're lecherous, and you're a blasphemer, you're a hypocrite. You cannot stand before God." And, and here's how Luther would respond. He would say, well, yes, devil, I am all of that. And indeed, you don't know the half of it. I have done much worse than what you say. And if you care to give me your full list, I can no, no doubt help make it more complete. But my Savior has died for all my sins. Those you mentioned, those I could add, and indeed those I have committed, but am unaware of having done so. Christ has died for all of them. He has taken them upon himself and clothed me in his own perfect righteousness. And then Luther gives this advice. He says, If the devil says to you, Thou thou shalt be damned, you tell him, No, for I fly to Christ who gave himself for my sins. In accusing me of being a damnable sinner, you are cutting your own throat, devil. You are, you are reminding me of God's fatherly goodness toward me, that he so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. In calling me a sinner, Satan, you really comfort me above measure. And then, and then Luther says, uh, with such heavenly cunning, we are to meet the devil's craft and put from us the memory of sin. See, Luther knew what temptation looked like and he knew the feel of accusation and and he did know the evil in his own heart and he like he knew that he was a sinner um and he also knew how to look at jesus more than um, at himself and what a gift that is to have that skill to look at jesus more than you look at yourself i wonder family can you do that can you do that Be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God. Put on the new self. Put on love. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ.
In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.